Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the second installment in our Godzillaverse movie review series. Today we are reviewing Gareth Edwards' version of Godzilla. This is your co-host, Corbin. And I'm Alan. So if you missed it last week, we reviewed King Kong vs. Godzilla that came out in 1963. That was done by Universal Pictures. These Godzillaverse movies are all done by Warner Brothers and Legendary Entertainment. There's no continuity whatsoever between the 63 version and this 2014 film. This isn't a sequel. The reason we reviewed that was because we are building up to King Kong. Oh no, I guess they switched it actually. Godzilla Mm -hmm. vs. Kong which is finally coming out next month. So we are uh, building up to those movies. So we're going to go back and take a look. This series has been kind of a long time in the making. It's uh, 2014. That was seven years ago. Yeah, this was also not planned to be anything, any kind of um, uh, universe until this we did so well in the box office. So before we go too far, listeners, I do want to call your attention to the description below. We have timestamps down there. If you want to jump ahead, you want to just jump straight into our thoughts or even our final thoughts, you can do that as well. While you're down there, make sure to follow us on Letterboxd and all of our social media platforms so you can stay up to date with what we're watching throughout the week, what we're posting. And also we're on all major platforms, podcasting platforms. So um, we have links to all of those as well. We have our Patreon page where you can uh, support us and get some great content there. And no matter where you're at, make sure to leave us five stars and a written review. We greatly appreciate that. That does the written review actually does very help us in the rankings. It very much helps us uh, get noticed by other people um, wanting to find a fun movie review podcast. It's just a free, easy way. It takes you two seconds. Free, easy way to help build the Silver Screen Guide community, and it does help us reach our 2021 goal of being verified critics on Rotten Tomatoes. So just wanted to call your attention to that. There's a lot of great content down there. Also, we do post the um, next four weeks of movie reviews and then a link to our full 2021 schedule. That's been updated quite a bit. So if you haven't checked it in a while, the schedule has changed because as we mentioned last week, we were technically supposed to be reviewing the Kingsman films right now leading up to uh kingsman which was originally supposed to come out in like two weeks <laughs> surprise yep. it's not coming out for like seven months <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so we thought it'd be a good idea to get a jump start on the godzilla film before that comes out next month but you brought up gareth edwards as the director yeah he had as far as i know he had only done one other film before this monsters i believe yeah. that's what it's called H- have you seen it I haven't seen it. In fact, I don't. I don't even know if I've heard of it until I was doing research for this review. Um, but yeah, this is so far his only only his second film, Godzilla after Monsters, and then he would later go on to direct Rogue One, which is yeah. interesting. But that's it. He's only done three films, three f- feature length 
um, theatrical releases. Yeah, this was the time of the what I call the time of the indie director, where during this period, big studios were plucking young independent filmmakers that made very promising movies. And, you know, this has happened before. We talked about Bill and Ted's bogus journey, Pete Hewitt. They plucked him out of obscurity and then he went right back into obscurity. But <laughs> never mind. Um yeah, so even with next week, Kong Skull Island, Jordan Vote Roberts, he did a little film as well. Um, so this was a time for directors that had done lower budget projects to get on board with bigger budget things. And yeah, that's what propelled him to get Star Wars Rogue One after right. this. Right, exactly. Now, when Godzilla came out, like I mentioned, it began as a short, it began as like a short film idea um, and then ended up becoming a feature length film. So when it did come out, um, people, I get, I don't know, I don't know if uh, Hollywood was necessarily like, you know, banking on how good it was going to do, but it had a budget of 160 mm. million. So, yeah, which is pretty significant um, for a film yeah. of this size. <laughs> In a second time director. Exactly. And a second time director. So I'm wondering if, you know, some of this was maybe studio, um, if there was like more studio interference on this one where they were wanting to also take on the project. I don't know, because this is a, like a, essentially a first time director, at least with a Hollywood budget and a Hollywood studio behind him. But that is, you know, not insignificant to get, you know, money of that, that size. No, yeah, that's a that's a nice chunk of change to play around with with this mm -hmm. movie. And I will say it makes sense because there's tons of visual effects shots in this movie yeah. Yeah. that would require probably at least this amount of money to make the monsters believable, to make the destruction feel real. I know they released it in IMAX, so the presentation had to be good, had mm -hmm. to attract audiences. Um, oh, before I forget, I have actually seen part of Monsters before. Okay, okay. I watched it a couple of years ago with my wife and I, I didn't finish it. We ultimately just kind of lost interest and I'd be curious to revisit it now that I've seen his other two films. Um, but yeah, I could see where he, sh he definitely had promise where they could say, you know what, this guy, yeah, why don't we just give a fresh face this Godzilla movie? Cause he did pretty well with this other monster movie. But as of right now, I haven't seen all of it. it. It really wasn't catching my attention, but that's just my quick take on it. Mm -hmm. uh, but I am curious, Alan, for somebody this young who hasn't done very much, we've already alluded to the box office doing pretty well for mm -hmm. this movie. So, yeah, opening weekend, 93.2 million, which is pretty good. Domestically yeah. overall, 200.7 million. Foreign markets at 328.4 million for a worldwide total of $529 million. So, yeah, it did really pretty well in terms of its box office returns. Because usually, usually you want to get back at least, you know, double the budget, right? Well, that was, that's almost, what is that, triple? Um, so, yeah, that ended up getting a pretty significant amount of money back. Yeah, grossing half a billion dollars. There's no way the studio wasn't going to make a sequel to this movie. Oh, yeah. And exactly. especially it was kind of a little bit of trial by fire, I would say, mm -hmm. because we've talked about before, of course, Americans know about Godzilla. There was that 98 Matthew Broderick movie that 
I think kind of just it was strange. It left a sour taste in people's mouths. Mm-hmm. I don't think American audiences had really done much with the franchise. Not to mention it came out uh, May 16th, right right before that big summer rush right. uh, was going to take place. So <laughs> a little bit of trial by fire and it seemed like he, uh, he financially um, succeeded. What did it go up against uh, opening weekend? Um, so I'm curious about that. Yeah, so in its first week, it came out number one, um, but Neighbors and Amazing Spider-Man 2 and Million Dollar Arm were right behind it. Um, and then in its second oh. week, Days of Future Past came out, uh, X-Men. And that was number one, so it bumped down to number two. And then Maleficent yeah, came out the week sense. after that and bumped down to number four. And then Fallen Our Stars came out the week after that, bumping it down to number six. So yeah. That all yeah. makes sense. It did pretty well in the box office in terms of placement. Um, but of course, since it's the summer, like pretty much every weekend gets like a new big release. So it was number one for mm-hmm. a, one week and then just kept going down the list. So how did audiences react to it? So as of right now for scores, um, it, it's kind of somewhat all over the place. Um, there's somewhat, some variance there, but IMDb of a 6.4, Metascore to 62, Rotten Tomatoes had a positive 76% critic score, 66% audience score, Simba score of a B plus, and Letterboxd score of a 3.0. So there is some variance. <laughs> um, looks like critics seem to like it because the Met score is in the green and the Rotten Tomatoes score, I yeah. think that is considered certified fresh, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, it is. Yeah, just barely, of course. But um, right. yeah, everyone seems to think it's pretty good, it looks like. Pretty good to mediocre. Yeah, the one thing that throws me off of all these scores, I think these scores make sense. 62 is barely in the green. Yep. And um, Rotten Tomato audience score 66% isn't like an overwhelming endorsement. And that B plus cinema score is like, yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, it was a fun mm-hmm. time. Um, the 6.4 is what kind of throws me off on IMDb because that's pretty low. I yeah. think um, it's... Um, which makes me think that over time, over the past six, seven years, it's probably dropped. It's, it's just probably gone. It was probably higher than this. And over time, it's just gone down is my guess. Yeah. And I wonder if that's attributed to the films that would come after this, like Kong Skull Island um, and Godzilla King of Monsters. I wonder if those would have affected this in any kind of way. Um, kind of hard to say because I do remember... Back when this came out, I remember hearing pretty good things about it. I remember yeah. the score. If I remember right, the score was higher than a 6.4 when, it's first, when it was first released. Um, but I don't exactly remember if that's true or not. But yeah, so you're, I, I agree with you. It's, you know, it's interesting that it is, the scores seem to be a little bit low. But, you know, who knows if that's attributed to the films that came after it or if this was actually how it was when it was released in 2014. I, I feel like it was they were higher, but maybe they weren't. It, it should be noted, the 76 uh, critic score is the highest of the series so far. Okay, that doesn't sound very good, because that's just barely scooting by on that uh, certified fresh. Yeah, uh, peak ahead, Kong Skull Island is a 75% certified fresh. Oh man, <laughs> even closer. <laughs> Alright, so have you seen the trailer for this? Did you see it back in 2014? Oh, I'm not sure yeah. if I did, but... Did you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So this was coming out in IMAX. I I went back and watched the teaser trailer, which was like two and a half minutes long. And <laughs> yeah. the trailer two or trailer one, whatever you want to call it. 
Honestly, I love both of these trailers. The first one, which is about, um, like I said, two and a half minutes. I just think it's pure awesome. I get chills. It uh, kind of has that 2001 um, Stanley Kubrick score to it where they're doing the halo jump. And that's just the just the trailer, I think. And um, then we get some HP Lovecraft Mountain of Madness vibes. Uh, I, I still love the trailer. It gets me hyped. Um, it has some very kind of haunting imagery, just seeing the scale of this monster they're coming down towards. And then trailer two, I still think is incredible. I couldn't wait to see it. And um, I think honestly, this for me, this is how you do a trailer. You don't give too much of the plot away. You entice me with some very tantalizing, exciting scenes. It makes me curious to see what more this movie has to offer. So I was really expecting to be in for a treat with this movie. That's just me. Yeah, I don't remember seeing this trailer like I mentioned a second ago back in 2014. I knew that this was I knew that this was released, um, but looking at the trailers now, I'm kind of with you, Corbin. These trailers are pretty really good. Like uh, they do give enough mystery without like, they, they kind of introduce what's happening, but only to like the, like the first act or so, um, and then after that, it's just like it's completely like almost like it's just selected scenes to kind of give you get you interested into it. So yeah, no, mm -hmm. I'm with you. This is a very, th these are all very interesting trailers because they all kind of do the same thing, right? There's, they all just have different scenes like selected. So yeah, I'm with you. This does intrigue me. Now, would it get me in the theaters? It might have. Um, I mean, it clearly did not back in 2014 um, when, it, when it was first released, but it might get me in, in the trailer to see, you know, you know, this is showing some pretty interesting imagery. You know, what can they do? with an, like, a more Americanized version um, of Godzilla again, especially after what happened with Roland Emmerich a few years prior. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I might be in the theater. Um, I'm not usually too, you know, keen on just these big um, Hollywood pictures, but I might go check this one out because it does look interesting. They are very good trailers. Yeah, and like I said, I saw it. I don't remember if I saw it in IMAX. I want to say that I more than likely did mm -hmm. i didn't get to see it with my dad theatrically um i got it for christmas on blu-ray not long after and mm -hmm. i rewatched it with my family in our home theater and i don't think i've revisited it since so coming back to it now was fairly fresh i may have watched it one other time but i've i've seen this movie about three or four times okay now this would be my first time watching it for this review um i mm -hmm. think i tried to watch it one time and just ended up not doing it um, I've always heard good things, but I just never actually got around to actually watching it until for until now when I had to for this review. Yeah. The other thing I did for this review was I found out there was an official movie novelization. It's a quick read, so I did read it beforehand. So there's a couple things that are different. Uh, we'll, I'll, I'll mention it. There's really not much to talk about there. And I know they did come out with a prequel graphic novel called Godzilla Awakening, which kind of takes place in 1954, I believe. I didn't get a chance to read that graphic novel. I know they did one for Kong Skull Island. When I try to get my hands on that, I did pick up the Kong novelization. So I'll definitely read that beforehand. But I'll try and get my hands on the graphic novel and see see what that has to offer. But I, yeah, I'm curious. Mm. Well, listeners, if you have not seen Godzilla and you don't want the plot spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause right now. And then once you watch the film, come back and click play and we'll be ready to talk about it.
In the year 1999, a big radiation spike in the Philippines parts a mining expedition to uncover what is hoped to be a newly discovered uranium deposit. However, it is not such. A skeleton of a monster known as Gojira is found, along with two egg-like th uh, things, I guess, um, which one seemingly has already hatched. Over at a nuclear plant in Japan, they are seeing some weird seismic activity. Joe Brody, played by Brian Cranston, notices something abnormal about the so-called earthquakes before the entire structure begins to collapse, killing his wife. Flash forward about 15 years, Ford Brody, Joe's son, played by Aaron Taylor Johnson, is working for the U.S. Navy, finally being sent home after a while to see his family, which is short-lived when he has to fly back to Japan to bail out his father out of jail for trespassing into the quarantine zone where the plant had collapsed. Ford arrives to grab his father, but not before he convinces his son to also go and check out the zone. Again, they find their old house and then are apprehended by authorities, and they are brought to the remains of the plant where they witness another egg hatch and a monster spews forward. As the monster rampages, it kills Joe Brody in the process and makes his way to Hawaii. Ford Brody ends up in Hawaii to try and fly back home with his family when the Mudo, which is that monster that hatched, attacks. Godzilla finally shows up to save the day and spooks off the Mudo after a battle is shown by newscasts. The Mudo runs away, but another Mudo from a nuclear waste facility in Nevada uh, sprung forward and attacks Las Vegas. Scientists deduce that one Mudo is a female and the other is a male, and that they are communicating to each other to mate. It is approved to use nuclear warheads to destroy the three monsters when they inevitably end up in San Francisco. However, this plan changes when all but one of the warheads is eaten by a Mudo. The three kaijus wreak havoc on San Fran, but the day is saved when Godzilla defeats both the Mudos and the warhead detonates safely offshore. The King of Monsters re-enters the sea just before the credits roll. So, as you can tell by Alan's plot, there's a lot to this movie, mm -hmm. and there's a lot of moving around. Uh, they go from, oh gosh, the Pacific Islands in the very beginning, mm -hmm. to the Philippines, to Japan, to San Francisco, back to Japan, and then they go to Hawaii, and then ultimately back to San Francisco, I believe. So right. it's a lot. It's a lot of globe trotting, I would say. Yeah, it all kind of ends up back in the U.S., but it's mostly on right. like Japan and San Francisco, California, like those like Western states of the U.S. and Japan. So like that side of the globe is where it primarily takes place. Um, so yeah. yeah, there is some globe trotting, but it's all it's not necessarily like oh, first we're in San Francisco and then we go to Europe or whatever. It's all kind of contained to at least some central area, but just hopping between different countries. Yeah, so at least they keep it contained. At least we do revisit certain locations. I gotta say, from my recollection, I remember that this movie is slightly over two hours. Take out credits; it's under two hours. From my recollection, this movie was very long. It took a really long time to get to. Godzilla. There was just so much to this plot. I don't know if reading the novelization kind of changed things for me, but this time around, I feel like the pacing is pretty quick. We move at a pretty quick speed through the through the film here. Yeah, we do. You're right. We do kind of move pretty fast through different things. And you do bring up a pretty good point. You know, we don't really see, we kind of see one of the monsters. I think it's about mm, half an hour-ish in when they witness um, that monster come from, from the plant. Um, but we don't really see, we kind of see glimpses of Godzilla um, here and there at the film. It isn't until they finally meet up in, um, I guess it's Las Vegas, when they have that first fight scene, which only is shown to us by newscasts. They just tease it to us. And we finally do get to mm -hmm. see Godzilla. And that kind of is something that I, I want to bring up later. Um, but yeah, they do kind of, I think that they, at least for me, they do kind of build the suspense pretty well. 
Um, because you know you only see glimpses of Godzilla, right? They say that oh, we awoken it in 1954, and you kind of see a picture of his of his spine of his of the spine um, coming out of the water, and it happens a couple of more times before he finally ends up in Las Vegas, where we do get to see him. Um, we do get to see Godzilla for the first time, like as a, a full shot. So they do do a pretty good job, I feel, of build up. Um, whether it's fully paid off, we'll talk about in a little bit, but. They do, at least for me, they do do a pretty good job of like keeping that sense of mystery um, when this film starts and then gets to finally get to the point where those two monsters eventually attack for the first time. Yeah, and I would agree with you. I think there's a lot of action to this movie. The first act is mostly kind of setup and drama where we understand these character situations and kind of the tragedies that these people have gone through and how like history is kind of going to repeat itself for the next generation of the Brodies. And then from there on out, it is this kind of nonstop action of destroying these monsters, getting them to, uh, I don't know, like I said, destroy to go away, uh, save those who are in peril. Uh, Ford has to save his family. And I think that was something that was severely lacking from the uh, King Kong versus Godzilla was the sense of urgency um, that this is actually a very serious threat. So I do appreciate that the screenwriters and Gareth Edwards bring to the film here that this is very dire. This is incredibly destructive. Uh, people's lives are being lost. Their livelihood will never be the same. And if they don't get this under control, then the world as they know it is going to be radically different or just come to an end because mm -hmm. the MUTOs are breeding. So there is that sense of urgency throughout this film that I like. Um, the other positives that I have are there's a lot of technical things that I think they do right in this movie. I think the sound design is really well done um, with the monsters, with the buildings being destroyed. Uh, just the this the soundscape and ambiance of this film I found to be very engrossing. And the visual effects, I thought the visual effects were very good, um, mm -hmm. especially looking back. Um, almost uh, coming up on seven years now. They were done by Weta, so no shock there that they're going to be high quality. Right. Um, I really do love the visual effects. I love that we have a real sense of scale of these monsters and the destruction that they're causing. Yeah, that's probably one of my other positives too, is that Gareth Edwards does a really good job of making the audience feel very small and insignificant, um, to, especially when mm -hmm. these monsters do eventually attack. Um, they, the, he does do a very good job with building that sense of scale. I, I do agree with you. That's probably one of the, my bigger positives towards this movie is when the monsters are there, they feel very big and they feel like a pretty significant threat, right? Like there's like no way that you can really stop these, uh, these monsters very easily, especially by yourself. Right. So yeah, there are a few scenes in particular, like the one in Las Vegas where the power goes out and all is really quiet and the, and the uh, military are up on the roof and they shoot out the flares and the camera like follows the flares and you kind of catch a glimpse of Godzilla um, and stuff like that's a that's shown in the tra I think all the trailers. That is a very that is at least for me was a pretty um, impactful scene because it does, you know, really give that sense of scale and you know how dangerous things really are. So yeah, that's one of my bigger positives is that Gareth Edwards does a really good job and making you the audience feel very small. You know, I don't think I have quite felt the scale in a movie, at least a kind of a dinosaur monster type movie like this. 
uh, until um, Jurassic Park, when I first saw the Jurassic Park movie mm-hmm. and what they were able to achieve with the animatronics and visual effects there. So that did kind of give me that feeling of, is this the next Jurassic Park in a way? Mm-hmm. Um, because of these monsters, the sense of urgency, the destruction. So if I'm universal, I'm looking at Gareth Edwards to revive the Jurassic Park franchise. Clearly, that's not what they did. But I'm I'm just saying, I'm thinking more so come to Jurassic Park. I don't know. Like Disney thought, oh, let's do Star Wars. But that's just what I'm thinking anyways. Um, and the other thing that I think he does very nicely, which I do recall that from Monsters, is he seems to almost be of the old era of almost the um, keep things in the shadows, keep things in suspense, let audience use their imagination to just see how frightening it is. And I could definitely tell he's read H.P. Lovecraft, a reference Mountains of Madness, which is the Cthulhu one of the Cthulhu monster myths and you never see the monster or it's never depicted to you. It's just the shadow of it that is enough to drive the character in the book, drive them insane, just seeing the horrifying shadow. That's just something I love is his usage of shadow, his usage of keeping things in the dark to just keep that fear at bay. Because sometimes when you show things too much, now I think we actually get plenty of these monsters, we see them enough, mm-hmm. but I think he effectively brings them in and out of the scene to really pull the tension in, pull it back, let it go. I think he does a really great job of that. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier when I said that, you know, with the, at least the first act, just the build up to that mystery right. is he's done, I thought, really, really well. Because, yeah, you're right. He does keep those monsters in the shadows and just kind of makes you wonder what do they really look like? Like we catch glimpses here and there of Godzilla and of one of the Mudos, which I think we hear, we see most of when it, when it first hatches, but you do kind of want to, like, you do wonder like, you know, what in the world does this monster really look like? And it doesn't take, it takes a while before we actually get like a clear picture and a full body shot of what both Godzilla and the Mudo actually do end up looking like when they finally meet in Las Vegas. So yeah, he does do a very good job at, um, at making you, at, you know, getting you to wonder and building that mystery as to, you know, what do these monsters look like? Because you just kind of imagine it because just based off the short glimpses that you do get to see. One of the other things too, is that um, this all, this also kind of harkens on some like end of the world vibes. You And I've really got that from the trailers too. There are a lot of like destruction scenes where it just feels like it's just completely inevitable. And a lot of people do end up dying in this film because they're just stuck in these skyscrapers that when the power goes out, there's no way that they can escape, um, especially when they hit San Francisco as well. So you do kind of get some of these like end of the world vibes from some of these scenes because it's almost like it's inevitable that no matter what we do as humans, these things are going to end up in San Francisco, you know, to finally duke it out at the, at the end of the day. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it does kind of, especially in the climax, I would say they do a good job at making things feel like, you know, really intense when they hop out of the plane and they have that, like you mentioned, the chosen one uh, music going when they're sky, you know, skydiving um, towards the ground. They do some, they, they do have some in the world vibes to it, uh, which makes sense since they're, you know, talking about, you know, dropping a nuclear warhead on these monsters to destroy them. Because <laughs> there is that discussion, you know, about the ethics of using nuclear weapons in this film too. Yeah, there is that kind of inevitability of doom where, 
humanity has always thought itself at the top of the food chain, but what if there was something so powerful, so far beyond our control, we just really wouldn't be equipped to take care of it. And ultimately, you know, we would need an opposing power in order to stop it. So there really is that almost futility while balancing that kind of hopefulness of there is still a possibility. And and I like that because Godzilla has mostly been just kind of this mindless monster that we just like to see smash into other puppets <laughs> and whatnot. But at least they give Godzilla a bit more of, I would say, a smarter motivation here that he's here to kill his prey. These mm. are his prey. Now, they're very strong and he is it's two to one. But humanity doesn't really matter to him. They're so small and insignificant, whereas uh, that's why ultimately they couldn't just have Godzilla versus the humans like in the original film. That's why they brought in other giant monsters for him to fight. And uh, I do like that. Once Godzilla is done, he's not just going to destroy the world. I mean, why would he? What what would he even get out of that? It doesn't make sense. He just kind of leaves and goes away. Right. Um, so I do like that as well. Um, there are some really, I think, great moments in this movie. The halo jump we talked about. Mm -hmm. Um, I always remembered the bridge scene. I think that's probably one of the more suspenseful scenes in the movie. Um, there is this really great, great shot, um, when they're in Chinatown and it's just music in the scene and you just see the silhouette of Godzilla with the lightning and uh, against the smoke and then he kind of sweeps his tail and the smoke clears and you do get that kind of awesome power and even when the muto escapes for the first time you really get that like oh gosh we're we're done (laughs) we're done this thing is really terrifying and i like the creature design for that as well i got a question the the uh the creature design when these Godzilla, not so much, but these Mutos, uh, at least the first one that is birthed, did you get any Cloverfield vibes? Because I sure did. I would say definitely Cloverfield vibes with the way they move and kind of rampage through the city. Um, And uh, particularly with kind of their like appendages. Yeah. um, With the way their body's constructed. There's some, yeah, I mean, Cloverfield was a big deal. We have reviewed the Cloverfield trilogy. Go Mm -hmm. ahead and check those reviews out. Um, yeah, you're right. There's some Cloverfield vibes, but I do like how insect looking it is. It doesn't look like an alien to me. To me, it looks like a giant bug and it's really sleek. Right. It's really fast. It just, it doesn't look really gross like a bug, I would say, but it does have that kind of, uh, almost arachnid or insect, uh, qualities to it that I like. Um, I gotta know, Alan, you're the big score guy. What do you think of Alexander Desplat's score? So I guess I forgot, but I actually have heard like the main theme, like the one that plays over the opening to the film. I have heard that opening score before and it's pretty good. It is done by Alexander Desplat, who has done a lot of good, a lot of good things. Um, most notably he did, he was Oscar winning for Grand Budapest Hotel for a score on that. So yeah, for the most part, I do... I do enjoy this score more than I thought I would because it is done by Alexander Desplat. And I, when it was playing, I was like, when it was playing over the opening, I was like, oh, this sounds familiar. I know I've heard this before. My cousin is showing <laughs> to me, come to find out. I forgot that he did. Um, and then I, that's when I looked it up and sure enough, Alexander Desplat was there running the score. So yeah, I would say that the score is most definitely above average. 
um, and does have some memorable memorable moments to it. Um, at least for me, especially that that opening that opening track. It's not Desplat's best score, I would say. It's not really up towards the top. There are some really good moments, like you said, mm-hmm. but then there's other times where it's just fine. Um, I guess. I mean, I think he's just improved over time. I I guess I've just been spoiled with Desplat's more recent scores. Um, probably my favorite of his is The Shape of Water. Yeah, um, Isle of Dogs was really good too so uh i mean this guy is just popping up everywhere all the time and his scores are just phenomenal now uh it's, it's rare you don't see him at the oscars but yeah the there's some really great moments with the score here yeah um and you know what i gotta say i i like the cast for the most part i like we get ken watanabe sally yates uh david strathairn we just reviewed him in the born movies mm-hmm. um Brian Cranston, I wanted a little more Walter White emotions from him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that we just qu- quite don't get here in the beginning. And um, believe it or not, we just reviewed Aaron Taylor Johnson in Tenant. Um, That's right. I was surprised. He, he was also a military guy. Uh, he's gotten so much better. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about him in a bit. But yeah, you're right. I. I do wish that even uh, you mentioned Brian Cranston, how you wish you would have gotten some more uh, Walter Wright vibes from the beginning. I would have liked more Brian Cranston just in general because he disappears mm-hmm. about not even halfway in. I think is after the the Mudo breaks uh, goes free. Um, he dies on in the plant, right? I would have liked yep. to seen him more because he is like a pretty big pretty big actor, especially since Breaking Bad. And he just kind of disappears after that first act, leaving it only to Ford Brody, his son, who we'll talk, like I mentioned, we'll talk about later. Yeah, that's the big surprise is Brian Cranston dies 40 minutes into the movie. And um, yeah, that's not even halfway um, into the movie. So I was wondering what you would think about that. I remembered he didn't carry through the entire plot. And that is really disappointing. But yeah, I mean, I want to know what you think of the about the first 15 minutes of the movie, because I think there is so much going on so quickly because it's 54, 99 in the Philippines mm-hmm. and then in Janjira, Japan and the reactor meltdown. I don't think I actually quite understood what was going on and how that all ties into the rest of the movie until I actually read the novelization this time around. Cause I always remember just being kind of confused cause there's so much that's going on, but it all connects later on. Yeah. I, I wasn't too confused on it when I was watching it for the first time. Um, but yeah, this opening, does, you're right. It does go by pretty fast because we got to set up a number of things. Um, and so I, I do kind of like to that at least the one big thread here is that, you know, mom dies right brian cranston or uh-huh. uh joe brody's wife uh San- sandra is her name sandra dies in this beginning right and so that does kind of set up for what's going to happen later with brian cranston's character joe when he dies in the same in the pretty much the same location as his wife um it gives it that emotional angle well it didn't really follow through with that i would say um when it goes to the sun um it's just kind of set up and then after joey dies it just kind of dropped but either way um i do like that the at least you know build some of that emotion to give it more uh, i guess you know weight for these characters when you know those monsters do end up starting to wreak havoc and whatnot 
on on the planet. So I, th I think it's a pretty solid, I think it's an all right opening. They do a pretty solid job at getting things, getting things set up, but it is a bit exposition heavy. But, you know, there is a lot of things that they have to get together, it feels like, to, you know, get the story to start rolling again. Yeah, I think it's a smart idea to focus on one family and they're not actually affected by Godzilla per se. They're affected by his enemy on the food chain. So I think it is smart to bring a, an emotional element to have this young boy's mother die, to have his wife pass away. And then you can clearly tell it's like 15 years later, there's a really strange relationship between them. And I think that would have been great to explore throughout the movie, not just the first 40 minutes. Because yeah. I think Brian Cranston, or excuse me, I should say Aaron Taylor Johnson without Brian Cranston, he just suffers to carry the movie emotionally, I would say. Uh, mm. So I don't know. Do you want to go ahead and talk about the characters? Because I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk about the characters. Um, because I think you're right. Ford Brody, after Brian Cranston dies, Ford Brody essentially just disappears for a good chunk of the film um, for a, for a while. And there, and when he is there, there's not much develop it, development on his character, it feels like. And it feels like the death of his father doesn't really affect him after he leaves um, and yeah. ends up in Hawaii. So I think you're right. When it's left to Aaron Taylor Johnson to carry the film, I don't think that he, I don't think he necessarily pulls it off very well. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And that's something that the book does really well is provide a lot of character introspection on thinking about how history is repeating itself, how now he can mm -hmm. understand now that he's a father, what it would be like to try and save your child from a disaster to possibly lose your loved ones. And he really is the hero of the book. He tries to disarm the bomb in the end. They don't even let him do that. And the book conveys that this guy is stressed out. He is tired. He is going off of no sleep for like 72 hours straight. And the weight of the world is on his shoulders. So that's something I was really kind of shocked and disappointed to discover coming back to the movie is a lot of that character emotionality. A lot of the stuff that he does in the book is just missing from the movie here. So in mm -hmm. that respect, I can, if you want to del delve deeper into the character's emotional connections, it's there in the book. It's really not here in the movie. And I was really frustrated as well that um, these characters, okay, we talked about how the, how Gareth Edwards and the screenwriters do a good job of crafting this grand scale of the world is coming to an end. Unfortunately, I just don't ever believe these characters feel that. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. When it comes to these characters, you know, portraying, you know, that same emotion that Gareth Edwards is trying to, you know, put on the audience, that sense of, you know, you're very small and insignificant, doesn't really pass through on those characters, it feels like. if In times, it feels like, you know, they're looking up at nothing because <laughs> it really is nothing when they get into the filming uh, aspect of it. Yeah, there's this, um, there's really no strong familial connection. I don't ever believe Ford is really desperate to get back to his wife and son. And that's a shame because that mm -hmm. is drastically important for us to care about these characters. Yep. And um, this son is giving nothing to do. 
Um, even Elizabeth Olsen, I really like her as an actress. I just feel like she's not given much to do. And I don't know if this was her fault, if Edwards wasn't giving her proper direction. But at least in the book, um, she is super stressed out at the hospital mm-hmm. because she is trying to keep her son safe. She even loses her son at one point and can't find him, and which is a very scary thought. And I mean, people are just flooding into this hospital. These people are stressed out to the extreme and I never get any yeah. of that. Um, yeah, no. She's just, they're all milling around. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm with you for, you know, given the situation that they're in, you don't really, I don't think they really pull off how um, much it affects these characters. Um, they kind of show it when she's in the hospital and she answers the phone after finally hearing from um, from her husband. That I think that's probably the biggest scene that shows some kind of like weight on these characters. But and it's, it gets kind of weird because after that scene, she also just kind of just disappears. She is kind of in the city and is kind of affected by the monster, but we only really see brief glimpses of that. And then after so long, they just quit cutting back to her and then she's magically okay at the end. So it's, yeah, her character after a certain point, her character feels very, um, very strange. I am really disappointed that uh, the wife just disappears as well. And um, yeah, you you were talking about that phone call they had. No emotion behind that phone call, at least for me. Um, Gosh, I'm really just missing. I'm thinking of Daniel Day-Lewis in The Last of the Mohicans with that waterfall scene where he's like, stay alive no matter what. I will find you because he knows she's about to get captured. And then he just jumps through the waterfall it's an awesome scene with mm. madeline stowe none of that here it's just uh i'll see you soon uh be safe okay yep. you, you could never see her again you could die yep but <laughs> yeah his his acting is bad uh his emotions just don't come through at all i'm disappointed i'm also very disappointed that um ken watanabe and sally yates dr shirazawa and graham have nothing to do except one exposition scene what the heck? Yep. They, yeah, yeah you're right. Kenan Watsonabe, he comes to find out that Joe Brody was right the whole time. And once he comes to that realization and then explains <laughs> it, then he has literally nothing to do. <laughs> nothing Which to do. is, and then that's kind of the biggest thing too, is that this movie is, you know, it, I feel like it's trying to build some kind of emotional connection with these characters. Like they're trying to make these characters be really affected by the situation. But when they're given so little to do, especially after a certain point in the movie, what and that's when Brian Cranston dies and leaves the film, there's nothing much there with these characters. And it should end up just being more about the monsters, it feels like, which they hardly show anyways when it gets to these scenes when they're supposed to fight. So it, it mm-hmm. starts to, things start to get kind of underwhelming after a certain point, at least for me, because the characters aren't very interesting. I'm not seeing much of these monsters, uh, but they're just explaining things to me, right? So th- after a certain point, I'm just like, uh, okay, can we get like, something going here? Um, like This is mm-hmm. all kind of interesting and stuff, but like there's not much of them that's grabbing me. Yeah, and I, I will say overall, I think things could be tighter in this movie. Mm-hmm. I just think, as you're saying, we either need to go full in on the monsters. We need to bring more of an emotional connection with the humans. I think because this is probably um, Edward's first big budget movie and he hasn't had this money to use this big a cast or direction to go with. I think probably some of that falls on his shoulders because I just noticed throughout the movie that, yeah, they're doing the right thing. They're going from A to B to C 
and they're transitioning through scenes fairly well. And, you know, I, I'm enjoying it for the fact that it's kind of a fun summer blockbuster type movie, mm-hmm. but I really do think they could have tightened up, um, to some of the technical aspects and, um, some of the like acting and emotional aspects as well. Yeah. Um, you know, I never thought there was any tension as to whether our hero will die. Did you ever consider that uh, any of the leads are going to die? No, <laughs> I never really thought that outside of Brian Cranston, um, who I was surprised lived past being crushed by the collapse of uh, what structure was there <laughs> for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, yeah. that's yeah. You can you can kind of tell that you know well these characters are going to survive to the end no matter what, right? And it's there's very little tension there. You're right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately. And, you know, I also think it is kind of, well, okay, you did bring up a good point of the monsters battling at the end. I thought that was fun to watch. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Godzilla never loses his atomic breath, right? Yeah, he gains it at one point. I think it's during the second fight, the second battle with the Mudo, if I'm not mistaken. And he never really loses it after that. He just start, he starts using it more once he gets to the climax. Yeah, so there was more tension in the book because the Muto was able to use its powers to like basically short circuit Godzilla's atomic breath. Hmm. And he wasn't able to summon it and use it. And um, they, they like slashed his throat. They really messed him up bad. And he's just bleeding all over the place. Right. And ultimately, he is able to bring it back. But there is more of that tension. So I was surprised to see that in the movie, I was really looking forward to Godzilla losing that aspect. But he does seem to be fairly invincible for the most part. So even there, there's not a whole lot of tension, I would say. Right. And they try to, I think they're trying to build some kind of empathy with Godzilla, um, especially when he starts losing the fight towards like the last uh, about two thirds into the climax, and then of course makes a triumphant return. They try to do something, mm-hmm. and they have you in this like the this emotional music playing over it as the two mudos are like taking him down, and it's just like, <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> Why are we trying to build <laughs> such an emotional connection with this monster who we've hardly seen, by the way, in this film? Yeah, and that's done much better in the book because the emotional connection comes through our human character. You're right. We can't really build an emotional connection with this giant monster, mm-hmm. but the um, the feelings are paralleled between the two of them where Brody, uh, he's twisted, his, he's like broken his leg or something. Mm-hmm. He is losing consciousness. He can't, he can barely walk, but he still has to get the bomb out to see like Batman in the dark night. And um, he does take that moment to look at Godzilla. It's in the movie. It's really cut short. But in the book, he just looks at him and you realize that, yeah, the weight of the world is on both of their shoulders. Because if he doesn't get the nuke out of there, then the city is destroyed. And if Godzilla doesn't destroy the monsters and the city is destroyed. So there is much more of an impact. And you only realize Godzilla's struggle through Brody. It's all lost in the movie, unfortunately. Yeah. But, and, you know, um, I also got to say, I think the ending of the movie is kind of hokey, too, um, because the Jumbotron says, first of all, the family's reunited. Yay. I, I guess there's like almost no emotion there for me. 
Oh, um, yeah. But it says, yeah. King of the Monsters, Savior of our city, question mark. And then people start clapping when Godzilla gets up and walks into the ocean. I'm like, oh, yep. no. Yeah, no. they really try to make him some kind of like savior, especially in both like just in the movie and how they present it. Because at the end, when he's when Godzilla finally Rick gets back up after defeating the two Budos and like wanders into the sea, there's some triumphant music playing behind it, which again, <laughs> it, they're trying to build some as, as if Godzilla is like some superhero, right? Which is fine, <laughs> whatever. But at the same time, if you're going to do that, you need to at least have you know, a good reason and a good build up with it. Um, but, you know, that's kind of another thing, too, is that this movie feels, in, especially in one of these scenes, it feels like there's a lot of buildup in some of these scenes, but never really any good payoff, right? So, for example, right, one of the first, when we first see Godzilla, and it's, I think it's in, yeah, it's, in the, it's the Las Vegas scene that I mentioned earlier, it has a really good buildup, right, where, you know, the power goes out because Amuto did that EMP blast, um, and then you have the military up on the roof, and they shoot off the flares, and the camera follows the flares, and you see the monster, right? Um, and you get to see it all the way up to the point and all the way up to the point where the monsters actually start fighting in Las Vegas. Um, it's a really good buildup. And then once they get to that point where the monsters start fighting, they cut and we only really see glimpses of it on a television over a newscast. And it's just like, why would you do that? Why would you build this up so much and then just not pay it off until way later in the film, especially for a scene like this? It felt very underwhelming to me. Yeah, I know you're not the only one that feels that way. A lot of people, that was their complaint. And I mean, that's just a Godzilla movie, it seems like, where, and that's what we saw with King Kong versus Godzilla, is mm -hmm. um, they had that initial two-minute fight that we talked about, if you right. can even call it that. But you're right, nevertheless, there is uh, there is some of that loss where they're not able to show the fighting too early because then they'll lose the audience after that. So then that comes at the expense of possibly showing it too late. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely a valid, valid thing with this. Um, I think they're going to probably correct that in the next King Kong movie and have a lot more of Kong in it. So we'll see for next week. I'm curious to revisit that movie. And you know, the other, the one major, um, build up for me that just really wasn't there it's when um brody is taking the bomb out to sea and he's passing out and then the helicopter saves him when i was reading the book i couldn't remember if he actually died or not i was like oh man he yeah. might actually give his life yeah i guess the only the only thing i have left i want to talk about is just kind of a small thing i i, I was gonna bring this up uh, earlier um then i forgot to when the scene when ford brody is on the train to in Hawaii to go to the airport, right? There's this random kid that shows up that wants his a little army toy that was his when he was a kid who hops yep. on the train because he wants the toy, gets separated from his family, and Ford is like, don't worry, I'll bring him back, right? And then he has to protect this kid for a whole scene and then gets him back to his family. What a waste of time. Like, why Why would they, why is this here? I, I was questioning this when I was watching. I was like, why is this kid here? Is he going to be with Brody the rest of the film? Um, that was probably <laughs> yeah. the only other thing that I could bring up is it's just like I was just confused I'm just like well, who is this kid and why are we focusing on this kid so much and then when it turns out he's just Brody's just getting him back to his family and he essentially achieves nothing I'm just like why did we spend any time with that what in the world yeah they're hoping to create tension and they're hoping to draw a parallel between um, Brody's son and this little boy. 
So the little boy wants the little army soldier, right? Does and Brody gives it to him. Does he ever get that back? Um, I don't think so. Okay, because that's the whole point. Is it's cut from the movie, of course it is. But when Brody is back with his family, his son says, "No, well, it, it's still in the movie, I guess." Doesn't his son say, "Like, won't you be here in the morning or something?" I think so. Yeah, and of course, we don't ever see really see his disappointment. So that's not followed through. It seems like and. Right. Um, Brody says, I'll get you a little army soldier, um, to go back with it. So that was kind of the token he carried with him to remind him of his son that, you know, he wanted to get this back, uh, to his son and mm. I, he just randomly gives it to this Japanese kid that you're right. Um, there's not much there except it's supposed to create tension and According to you, it it didn't do it for you. So yeah, you're right. It's kind of yeah, <laughs> okay, right. Yeah, putting a kid at peril does not necessarily mean you immediately build tension. Yeah, and I gotta say, it's kind of like a one in a million chance that this kid would just randomly find his family after the disaster is over. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> it's convenient, and I really think they probably could have cut it because after a while, it becomes one major disaster after another and ford is caught up in every single one mm -hmm. you know what yashi you bring up another one of my negatives that i forgot to mention earlier again um there are a lot of conveniences in this movie a ton of conveniences in this movie um like for it feels like ford's like in the wrong place at the wrong time right he is captured and they get to they're working at the plant and they get to see the birth right when they're captured of the of one of the mudos right not long after mm -hmm. that he's also in hawaii which the monster is also going to it's and then is caught again in kind of the same situation um not long after what happened when his dad died and so and then later he ends up you know ends up getting into with in, getting in with this um, military group and joins them for a while. So it just feels like, you know, for at least the character of uh, Ford, it feels like he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time, or maybe the right place at the right time. There are just so many conveniences, I feel like, that are in this movie that, well, this just so happened to happen. Like, they just so happen to be captured and they get to see, you know, this monster um, hatch out of the egg or whatever. You know, I think that's one of the things that I really didn't like about this movie is that it just, there are a lot of conveniences to move the plot along. Yeah, I think my most frustrating one is when he is handcuffed in the back of the van and he can the van is conveniently busted open in the back, which breaks his handcuffs off and he's just magically able to get out there in time to see his dad collapse into ruin. Um, yeah, it is kind of incredible how he is always in either the wrong place or the right place at the right time um, because he joins every special military group to stop this and it all comes down to him to save everything so yeah you're right um he is conveniently everywhere whereas we have other characters that we just keep cutting back to like Shirazawa and Graham and even Stens or Stearns actually who's David Strathairn's character who just do nothing we keep cutting back to them either on the aircraft carrier or then they just have some kind of command center um, in San Francisco. They just do nothing. They kind of give out commandments here and there, but they realized that they brought them into the plot and they just can't 
just can't bring them out of it. So they're going to have to keep cutting back to them and have them do something. Uh, it's it's yep. messy. You're right. It's messy. Yep, exactly. Oh, Alan, I got to say, I'm, I'm pretty curious because I think you could go one way or the other. I, I'm curious. You seem like you might be on the edge. What is your rating and recommendation for Godzilla? So I remember, like I mentioned earlier in this podcast, I remember hearing good things about Godzilla when it had first released back in 2014. Um, if, I'm, if my memory serves me correctly, I didn't exactly go back to listen to those reviews that I listened to back then, but that's just what I remembered. So I kind of went to this, you know, wondering since I never have, again, I haven't really seen a Godzilla movie. I saw King Kong versus Godzilla last week, but I didn't, um, haven't never seen like a, like a standalone Godzilla film before. So this is my first foray into that. And I wish I would have been able to watch the original, but that didn't work out. Either way, Godzilla 2014 does a, does do some really good things. That sense of scale, that sense of you know pretty much inevitability that these monsters are going to end up fighting in somewhere in the on the globe. You know those things that you know really make you feel small and insignificant. Some of the even some of the visuals that help with that are done very well, and they do make the film somewhat um, somewhat impactful because of how much they feel make you feel very small and insignificant again. Um, but unfortunately, when it tries to rope in the human characters and give them some kind of emotional connection and emotional attachment to things, that's where this film begins to fail. And it starts to wander into territories where it doesn't properly set up things. Um, and it feels like it, when it does pay off or try to pay it off, it doesn't feel like it's a very good payoff. Um, so this movie, for a good chunk of it, feels like a buildup without the payoff almost. So... Um, it has some good elements to it, and I, I do like the elements that are there. Um, but ultimately, I think that this is not a very great film when it's all said and done. So at the end of the day, Godzilla 2014 receives, uh, I'm going to say five stars out of ten, but I'm going to say it's a very mild recommend from me because of that sense of scale um, that they do give it, making you feel like, you know, what is happening in this film, you just can't stop it, right? So that's what I'm going to give. Five out of ten, very, very mild recommend. I should say before I give my final thoughts, I did actually go back and watch the original 1954 Godzilla film, the Japanese version, not the inferior American cut from what I hear. Um, I, I wasn't crazy about it. I think for what it did at the time and what it was talking about, talking about how the atomic bomb affected Japan, I thought that was a smart way of talking about it. So there are some good elements to it. I just didn't find my concentration like really captivated by it. Bring on the hate mail. I know we're going to get letters from me saying that. <laughs> but that's just my quick thoughts on the original one. Um, the one cool crossover is um, Dr. Sirizawa is in the original Godzilla movie. And clearly they brought at least the name back and he's still a doctor in here. Now, Sirizawa is majorly important. He Spoiler alert, he saves the day in the old one. Uh, but I'll leave it at that because I know Alan hasn't seen it yet. Maybe a lot of you listeners haven't seen it either. So definitely curious once he sees it to know his thoughts on that movie. But as for Godzilla 2014, it's a fun summer blockbuster kind of movie. Director Gareth Edwards flexes his growing directorial abilities. And I'll admit he does very well behind the camera for his second outing. The visual effects, sound design, and action are highlights for this movie. 
Unfortunately, the story falters greatly when it comes to plot and performances. I am never invested in the emotional journey of our main character. His wife and son never truly seem distressed, and side characters such as Ken Watanabe and Sally Yates feel like a waste of talent since they are given essentially nothing to do. I gotta say I was excited to return to Godzilla, but I left disappointed. It's actually one of the monster's best films, by my recollection, because the human story is at least watchable. Although I enjoy the men in suits version of the monster, seeing it on a grand scale makes the spectacle all the more engrossing and invigorating. I think a lot of viewers will enjoy it purely for the giant battles, but the runtime may or may not hinder some from sticking around the full 123 minutes. Godzilla receives 6 stars out of 10 with a very mild recommend. So yeah, these are pretty much on the same page here. <laughs> pretty much, yeah. I uh, it's uh, it's not looking good <laughs> so yeah. far with our uh, first two reviews. Uh, we each have an average score of four out of ten. Mm, that's uh, not good. <laughs> it's not good. Hopefully, it'll go up from here, mm -hmm. but uh, we'll see. So, Alan, is this one going to? go into your collection or are you going to pass on adding it probably will pass on this one um again i did i did think about that so there's a possibility that i'll pick it up but i'll most likely pass on it it's the visuals that i enjoy the most from this movie the visuals are the thing that would probably push me to buy it if i were to buy it but in terms of story probably not yeah and you know i'm it's fine that i have it in my collection I'm probably, uh, who knows when I'm going to return to it. Mm -hmm. Who knows? It's going to be a very long time. There's really just not much here that would reward a repeat viewing, I would say. But clearly, we're not too keen on this one. But are there any other TV shows or movies that you could recommend to the listeners? So my one recommendation is one that I actually did get to see in the IMAX, Pacific Rim. Um, uh, I've seen that movie so many times because when we first watched it, my family <laughs> loved it. Um, and my thoughts have kind of changed on it, but Pacific Rim, I'm going to recommend Pacific Rim because that is one that's like monsters fighting and I think has a bit more payoff than this one does to a certain degree. So that's, that's my recommendation is Pacific Rim. I also am going to recommend Pacific Rim. Ah, uh, I'm not, I'm, I am not going to recommend Pacific Rim Uprising though. Hated that I haven't movie. seen that one yet. I've heard it's bad. Don't. I haven't seen it yet. If you want to, you know, waste time and torture yourself. Go right ahead. Uh, mm, it's awful. Fun. But yeah, um, did did we watch that one together at your house for like a party? We or, may have. Or your uncle at least put on the first. I think your uncle at least put on the first few minutes of it or something. I think you're right. I think we did. I think we did. Yeah. I think we did. Yeah. So I'm recommending that. I'm also going to recommend Rogue One. Technically, Alan and I have a review of that. Yeah. Um, at least on the YouTube channel, I don't know if, uh, I don't think the podcast ever went up because we forgot to edit some stuff out. So, um, maybe I'll just go ahead and release it now and you can hear me tell my dad what my food order is in the middle of the <laughs> review. <laughs> but nevertheless, I think Gareth Edwards next movie, I really enjoyed. I know not everybody did, mm -hmm. um, from what I understand. They had to bring in, I don't even remember who it was, some some big director we've reviewed before to reshoot parts of the end. So maybe maybe that's why it's as good as it is. That's I don't right. know. 
nevertheless, I will say Edwards has talent. And I mm-hmm. am curious to see what his fourth movie will be. And maybe I'll go back and rewatch Monsters. Alan, does this make you want to go back and watch his first film? Does it make you curious at all? It does make me curious. Yeah. I, if I can get um, a way to watch Monsters, I'm going to go check it out at some point. It's not necessarily something I'm itching to watch, but at some point <laughs> I would like to see it. So it took a while for uh, Godzilla to come back to the big screen. A whole five years, half a decade. Kind of yeah. a kind of a waste to wait uh, because I was really surprised when Kong Skull Island was there and there was no Godzilla. And I was like, wait, what? We're not getting a sequel to this. And mm-hmm. it took him a while to make this Kong movie and then it'd be another two before we got King of the Monsters. So we had a ways to wait to get a Godzilla movie. Sounds like according to both of our reactions, we weren't uh, we weren't first in line. We weren't uh, itching to get a sequel. Yeah, I also, I mean, I didn't see Godzilla and I wasn't really looking forward to watching Kong Skull Island. So I never did catch it in the theater. I think we watched it at your house. Not too long ago, actually. Yeah, that was uh, probably been a probably been a year or two mm-hmm. at this point. You're right. We did watch that movie. I think our other friend picked that one. I had just got it for Christmas, so it may have been three years ago if I did get it in 2017. I mm-hmm. don't know. Well, listeners, the question after the show is: If this was your first Godzilla experience, would you seek out the older films, or would you want a sequel to this movie? Uh, I'm I'm very curious. Yep, I can answer that right now. I want to see the original. I wish I had time to watch it before this review, but now I'm going to have to. Yeah, I'm curious to know your thoughts on it. So hopefully we'll be hearing your thoughts on the original Godzilla in one of our upcoming reviews. And what I'm going to try and do is watch the sequel, Godzilla Raids Again. I believe Mm -hmm. what this is the American version of it, at least the title of it. Uh, Hopefully I'll get my hands on the Japanese version. I'm curious to see what that does because um, Ishiro Honda, who directed... Godzilla versus King Kong, he directed um, the first one and the second one, and that one as well. So it is supposed to be the third film in the series, actually. Right. If I'm not mistaken, there I think he directed most of the Godzilla films. At least most of the older ones, as far as I remember. Probably. There's so many. I'm yeah. not going to go count. There are literally like 32. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's really a ton of Godzilla movies. So... Maybe someday I'll watch them all and rank them. I don't think we're ever going to review them here. That, that would take a couple years probably. And mm-hmm. But listeners, we want to know what you think. Are you curious to go see what they're about? You may love them. You may love the old movies. You may love this one right here. Curious to know what you think. So make sure to leave a comment no matter where you're listening at. And we will check those out. I'm, I'm very curious. Yep. All right. Well, Corbin, thank you for joining me. Yeah, absolutely. All right, listeners, well, stay tuned because next week, Corbin and I are going to be reviewing Kong Skull Island. So we'll see you then. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube 
Facebook and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. Yeah, it all kind of ends up back in the U.S., but it's mostly on, like, that eastern side. Um, Sorry, I mean, yeah, that eastern side. Japan and uh, the western side of the U.S. I think about that for a second. Right. So it mostly ends up All on the, the that side of the of the globe, right? Japan and um, right across the Bering Strait, um, not the Bering Strait, Japan and San Francisco, California, like those like western states of the U.S. and Japan. So like that side of the globe is where it primarily takes place. Oh, the neighbor's coming. Hold on. Uh oh. Hold on. Sorry. All right. Sorry about that. You're good. So UPS is stupid. Oh, great. And uh, yesterday they're like, hey, your package was delivered on your on your porch. And I look Mm -hmm. and I'm like, "Eh, no, it's not. That's a dirty lie. And last time they did this, they delivered it to the neighbor's house. And I'm like thinking, well, either it got stolen super fast or they just delivered it to the neighbor's house and the neighbor just brought it over. He's like... Yeah, I don't know why they keep doing this. (laughs) Great. (laughs) So that's it. That's it. Oh, well. And the movie, the movies like tease it out to the very end, because if there's too much of it in the middle, then your climax is coming too early. Um, Sorry, that sounded really inappropriate. I didn't didn't mean that. Okay, maybe cut that part. Uh, okay, <laughs> never mind. Sorry. Um, clearly, we're not too keen on this. Is there any other TV or movie show? Movie shows? Movie shows. <laughs> <laughs> movie shows. <laughs> Woo. That's it. Cool. Booyah. <laughs>